Good morning. Welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you guys for coming. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I want to let you know that we've got one more week in chapter 14. We'll, we'll do the third in chapter 14. And then after next week, all the pastors after the service will be up here for a question and answer session. So all these questions or thoughts or all these things have been going on in your minds uh, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians or even especially the last two or three chapters um, that we'll be here to answer them. And we're not promising any sort of answers that will fulfill every desire that you have. But we want to be open and, and know that, let people know that we're not scared of questions. Not just as pastors, but God is not scared of your questions. He wants you to bring them to him, that he would be addressed as the one who has answers, is the one who is the king. And sometimes we don't have all the answers, but we trust in God, the one who does. And so we just want to make you aware of that as well as we continue working through 1 Corinthians. I think the best place, though, to have your questions be talked about and discussed is really in home groups. And so I would encourage you guys, if you're not in a home group, this is the place where we come together in a close, closer community where we have uh, more intimate and deeper relationships with one another um, so we can have these discussions on a, on a normal basis. It's not just a more formal session like we're having next week, but just on an everyday basis, just living life together, asking the questions that we have about the Scriptures with the people we're getting in the Scriptures with all the time. So I'd encourage you to do that as well. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I'm going to start reading in verse 20 and go through um, verse 33. Hear the word of the Lord. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an outsider comes in, he is convicted by all, and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let others weigh what is said. And if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets." For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to your word. We want to recognize and just acknowledge and confess that you are God and that you are so gracious to have spoken to us that we get to open up your word. We look back through history, God, and it should amaze us that all of us can open up a Bible in our own language right here and right now. God, and I pray that you would help us to take advantage of this time, that we wouldn't waste our time this morning, that we would listen to you and what you would have us do. We would listen to your word so that we might know you and make you known. So help us. As we as a body sit under your word, would you help us to learn? Would you help us to know you? 
This is the end for which we were even created. And so, God, we ask for your help, and we have great hope that you will provide it. God, thank you for your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Confusion. Confusion could be a word that we could use to describe lots of different things. So if you, if you have kids, a lot of their conversations, or even if they're really young, some of the things that they're saying, you might hear something coming out, but you might really be confused about what they're actually talking about. Or if you have teenagers, and they're with other teenagers, and they're talking, sometimes you hear words and things you're just, I can't describe that conversation other than confusion. I have no idea what's going on there. Or maybe you guys have heard of these, these things called gifts. Have you heard of gifts? I won't explain it to you. It's just a new fad. Anyway, there are some gifts that are really what I'd call confusing. Some of them, and many of them actually that I've received, come from one of our pastors here. And I'm just confused when I receive them in, via text message or email. I'm just, I, I have no idea how to respond to that. It's too confusing. You just have to look some up uh, later if you, if you want to know what I'm talking about. Or maybe even in church, some people come into the church and they listen to what I say and they leave thinking like, I, I've got no idea there, like just confused, no, no idea what's going on there. Or you look around this, this building and you might think of some of the things, you're like, well, I'm not sure why anybody would ever want that that way. I'm a little bit confused with why this design was put this way or why that paint color was put there or whatever. Confusion. It could be used to describe a lot of different things, but Paul here writes so that confusion wouldn't be the main descriptor of corporate worship. He does not want our corporate setting to be a corporate worship setting that is marked by confusion. So hopefully you don't leave here today just thinking, man, I I have no idea what was going on there. I'm just completely confused after all of that. Paul would rather have us, rather than having confusion and and a confusing worship service, he would have us have this compelling and orderly corporate worship time. And so Paul, as he continues on through chapter 14, is giving instructions for that very purpose, that we would have this worship service that's compelling and that's orderly, that's marked by order. And so Paul, as he continues to write through 1 Corinthians 14, encourages Corinthians to to stop being children in their thinking, to move them from this place where their corporate settings could be a place of confusion to a place that's much more compelling. And he wants them to know how to do that. If you look in verse 20, he says, Brothers, don't be children in your thinking, but be infants in evil. In your thinking, be mature. So we've seen that kind of what's been evident of the Corinthians, that they thought that tongues were this great evidence of their great spirituality, and that tongues in their corporate setting was something that marked their corporate worship as especially having and being among the presence of God, that they thought that they were spiritual and speaking really highly spiritual things just because they were speaking in tongues, and they thought that this shows the great quality and the great spirituality of their corporate worship settings. And Paul is here basically saying, but in in your thinking in this way, Corinthians, you're being childish. You're desiring this outward thing, this showy, flashy performance that's outwardly impressive, but may not be doing what you you think that it's doing. And in essence, what Paul is saying here is that these Corinthians would rather have this display, they'd rather have this performance, they'd rather have something that's outwardly impressive, rather than something that could bring more depth to their corporate life, more than something that would actually bring understanding. 
So Paul is saying, you'd rather have a display than understanding. You'd rather have the flashy and the showy thing rather than intelligible words which could build up the entire body. And they're doing this and thinking this way at the cost of their own depth of love for one another and at the cost of their own depth of their love for God. And indeed, there's more than that who are at the cost of their thinking. See, from a couple weeks ago, outsiders being involved, not being able to come in and say amen. And here he includes another one as well, unbelievers in their midst. And so they're, in their thinking, they're being, they're being childish. Now, times have changed since the Corinthian church was around, but a lot of that thinking, that childish thinking really hasn't. And so often we would rather have the, the display. We'd rather have the outwardly impressive rather than just common, ordinary understanding of who God is and how we live life with Him. We'd rather have something that sounds and feels awesome rather than just knowing God. And the truth is, is that this is so evident, not just in other churches, but in our own lives, because what we have in front of us is the very Word of God. God has spoken. God of the universe, He he wrote a book And it's in front of us, and we have it. It's accessible to us, and we can read it and understand it. Even children can understand concepts that are all through the Scripture. And we have this in front of us, and yet we'd rather be entertained by other things. And if we're honest, that's where most of us are. Think about your daily life. Is this something that you look forward to more than you look forward to college football, or more than you look forward to looking at Pinterest and all the designs you could do on there? Do we really treasure this thing or do we really other, desire other things that we think are more important than God's word? So often we, and myself included, we're more impressed with other things. We're more impressed with a different kind of show than what God gives us in his word. And this is childish thinking. And Paul desires for us to grow in our thinking. Clearly, if you look through 1 Corinthians 14, using your mind is important. He wants believers and the corporate setting to be a place of deep thought where they're, they're giving great thought to what they're doing and they're giving great thought to what they're saying and that they're understanding and engaging with their minds as well. Without thinking, the church will starve. The church will die. Without thinking, the church will be lacking in so many ways. This is why Paul tells them clearly, speak with your mind as well. And don't be children in your thinking. In your thinking, rather, be mature. And so this is what Paul is calling us to. Come out of this infancy, come out of being children, and be mature in your thinking. Now, tongues is this huge area where the Corinthians needed to mature in their thinking. As Paul continues to say, verse 21, He says, in the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now here Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 28 verse 11 where he talks about what's going on with Israel. At the time Israel was given this warning and Israel was given warnings way back in the law in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, all those things we we don't like to read about God's word. He he gives some um, instructions to them and he tells them and he gives them warnings that if you guys don't follow me, if you guys don't listen to my instructions, if you don't keep this covenant that I'm making with you, eventually I'm going to judge you and you will face my wrath. And part of that wrath was that a foreign nation would come upon them. They would speak in a foreign language, and that would be a sign of God's judgment upon them for breaking the covenant. 
This was part of God's wrath. He was chastising them by sending a foreign enemy with a foreign tongue. And so when this comes, when he talks about this, he's saying, this is a sign, this foreign language, this tongue is a sign of judgment for breaking the covenant. And so this strange tongue was a sign to unbelieving Israel. And so he continues on. As a sign for unbelieving Israel of God's judgment, he continues on, verse 22 and 23, he says, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? So in contrast to kind of what the Corinthians think, tongues don't mark their gatherings as being especially in the presence of God. They don't mark their gatherings as being the ones that are highly spiritual and then the rest of the gatherings without tongues are not. This is not what's going on. He says to them, tongues are a sign for unbelievers, not for believers. In other words, they don't mark your gatherings and they don't mark individuals as being ultra spiritual or ultra of the presence of God. What they showed instead, as Isaiah 28 showed, was rather alienation from God, a separation from God. And this is the sign that is going out to unbelievers. And so in other words, incomprehensible speech, unintelligible speech, speech that cannot be understood, speech that is in a tongue, like the Assyrian tongue, as they came and invaded uh, the northern troops, the northern army of the Israelites, those kind of speech and that kind of tongue, it will not guide, it will not instruct, it will not lead to repentance. All those things are hopefully goals of gathering together. Instead, what it does to those unbelievers, as it did to those Israelites, is that it drove them away, drove away these unbelievers. Instead, we're left with judgment rather than what we would desire of our corporate worship settings to be. It confuses and drives away the unbelievers in their midst. It says that basically they think that they're possessed when they come in and see these things. Without interpretation, this tongue is a sign for unbelievers, and it's not a good sign. It's a bad sign that further alienates and that further drives away. Just as the experience in Isaiah 28 didn't result in the conversion of the hearers, so tongues in the midst of the corporate worship setting doesn't result in conversion of unbelievers. Instead, it shows alienation between God and his people. And Paul indicates this, that the use of tongues in church will not result in the thing that which they want it to result in. It's not going to bring conversion. It's going to bring further and future alienation. Indeed, these unbelievers come in and say, you're, you're out of your minds. You are possessed. And so tongues... Rather than having the effect that the Corinthians want it to have and actually think that probably is having, has a negative effect on the unbelievers and are not to the unbelievers' advantage. Instead, unbelievers, they receive no revelation from God, they receive no truth, and they think that all these believers together are crazy. You're out of your minds. What is going on here? It's marked by confusion rather than what they want it to be marked by. And so Paul is appealing to the Corinthians on behalf of another audience. We've seen several audiences. Clearly, we gather together to worship God. We're addressing God, but we're also with one another. We're to build one another up. We've seen this other audience of outsiders, those who kind of aren't in the know. Maybe they don't have the gift of tongues. And Paul says, you need to talk to them too. They need to be able to say amen. But here he includes another one. If indeed these outsiders are different than unbelievers, he's clear here, this is unbelievers. And you need to think about them when you come together. There are unbelievers here, and they're to be considered What's their greatest need? What do they need to hear? And clearly we would say the same thing about any unbeliever. What's their greatest need? 
The greatest need is Christ. The greatest need is the gospel. They don't need a show. They don't need a display. They don't need a performance. What they really need is Christ. We look to Romans chapter 10. Paul is so clear about what unbelievers need. He says in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 14, he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So here's the biggest issue for unbelievers. They do not believe in Christ. And how are they to believe in him and whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Verse 17 goes on to say, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so what unbelievers need is Christ. They need to hear the gospel. They need to be able to understand the gospel. They need to hear words that are understandable to them, that are intelligible to them. They need to hear of Jesus. And so hearing comes, with faith comes hearing. Hearing by faith is how you trust in Christ, how you've fully given your life to Christ. You have to hear it has to enter the ears in a way that is understandable. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so tongues, they don't give unbelievers the opportunity to hear. They don't give unbelievers these understandable words. It's just mumbled jargon to them because they're not interpretive. They're not interpreted. They're not intelligible. They're not understandable. And unbelievers aren't drawn in to God. They're pushed further away. And so tongues don't serve to be evangelistic at all. Instead, they, they do the opposite. They're driving believers away, and they think you're crazy when you're just speaking in tongues. And so this is the other audience that we ought to consider in our, our worship gatherings. In love, we need to consider one another. In love, we need to consider outsiders. And in love, we need to consider unbelievers. What do they really need? You know what's awesome in this passage is that with all the problems that are going on in Corinth, with, with all the mess that is that city, Unbelievers are compelled to come into their settings. Unbelievers are compelled to join them for corporate worship. Isn't that interesting? With all the issues that Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians had going on, the unbelievers are entering there. I think Paul is bringing up a, a very real scenario. And he says he, he doesn't want them to leave just thinking that they're crazy. Don't love them poorly by sending them away thinking that you're crazy. Instead, you need to consider them in love. They're there. They've been compelled to enter. Now give them words that are understandable. Every time we gather together, we're okay with people being offended. But we want them to be offended by the right things. Amen. We don't want people to be offended by all these unintelligible and ununderstandable language. We don't want people to be pushed further away from God because they can't understand what's going on in our midst. We want the, the offense to be the gospel itself, and that be the only offense. Everything else shouldn't offend, shouldn't drive any further wedges between an unbeliever and God. We're willing for the gospel to be a wedge. We're willing for the gospel to be offensive to people, but that's the only offense we want to have. And the Corinthians need to learn this, and we need to learn it as well. Without interpretation, tongues are not building up the body. They're not being considerate of these outsiders who can't come in and say amen, and they're not being considerate of these unbelievers. They're not helping any group. And so what we want to do as a body is we want to be able to be this place where unbelievers can come in. We want to be this compelling body where believers are compelled to come in. That they hear and that they sense and that they see, even in our lives and in our gatherings together, there's something different here. And they're compelled by that very thing, hopefully the very presence of God, to enter into our corporate settings, to enter into our worship gatherings. But we don't want them to leave without understanding. And we especially don't want them to leave without understanding who Christ is and how to come to be a believer. 
No, we want them to know the gospel. We want them to know that they were created in the image of God and that they matter to God and that God loves them and cares for them, but they've rejected him. We want them to know that they're under the wrath of God. We're willing for that to be offensive because we have good news after we tell them that. You are a sinner. You deserve wrath. But God has made a way for you to have peace with him through Christ. We want them to know that. This is what we want to be the most clear about in anything that we do is that you can have peace with God. You can be reconciled to God. You can have life now and for eternity with God through Christ and through trusting in him. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. May we not miss this every time we come together that we put forward before people, unbelievers and believers, Christ. And that it's very, very clear that if you want to follow him, turn from your sins and live. This is what God would have us make known. And so if you're an unbeliever, that's what we want you to do. We want you to turn from your sins and trust in Christ. And we want to be faithful to the scripture as believers. And we want to consider well unbelievers and make sure that what's going on here, even the things that I'm saying are understandable, that any person could come in at any different knowledge level and be able to understand a little bit of what's going on here and hopefully the whole thing. We don't want anything to be in an unintelligible language or a tongue that no one interprets where everything is just looks confusing to an unbeliever and an outsider. We want people to know Christ. And so our singing and our praying and our preaching and our exercising of all of our individual gifts, it needs to be done intelligibly. It needs to be done in a way that is understandable to all. This is the way we love This is how we love in a corporate setting is that we exercise our gifts in a way that others can understand. This is the way we preach. This is the way we pray. This is the way we sing in a way that can be understood by unbelievers. We want to be very, very clear. And so Paul, he kind of goes back to this comparison of of tongues and prophecy. And he kind of points out that there's a better option than just speaking in tongues without interpretation. If you look again in verse 22, at the end there he says, Prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Prophecy is a sign, he says, for believers. Where tongues are a sign for unbelievers, and it's not a good sign, it is a negative sign, a sign of judgment, a sign of alienation. Prophecy is this flip side. It's a positive sign, and it's a positive sign for believers. It builds up. And so even if you look back to Isaiah, and you think about this foreign army, and this nation coming and speaking in a language they didn't understand, and all it did to those unbelieving Israelites, those ones who were not faithful, who had broken the covenant and were not interested in returning to their God, what it did was just show them that they're under the wrath and judgment of God. But there were a remnant. There were some who were faithful. We don't know how many. It was probably very, very small. But there were some who were faithful, including Isaiah. And how were these faithful built up? What was the sign for them? What was the good news for them? Well, they were built up and benefited, not from these tongues of the Assyrians, but from faithful prophecy from men like Isaiah. Isaiah, still being faithful to the God, is speaking prophecies that the remnant, that the faithful are understanding and trying to take hold of and grasp and trust in so that they could follow and trust in God. And so prophecy, it ends up having this better effect as a sign for believers, but we see even more. It has a better effect on unbelievers. And this is really what Paul's doing here. He's, he's taking prophecy in tongues and he's saying, let's look at the effect it has on unbelievers. And so let's continue. Here's what prophecy does. Verse 24 and 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. 
What Paul is saying here is that the unbeliever can come in, and they ought to come in, and understand this prophecy that's going on because it's in intelligible language. It's understandable to all. There doesn't have to be interpretation. It's just a communication method, mode, that is understandable by even unbelievers who come into their midst. And so Paul is saying by clear communication, these unbelievers come in and look what happens to them when they see this and they hear this. They're convicted. The truth is brought to bear in their life and there's conviction of sin. There's repentance and there's worshiping of the one true living God. By this, by prophecy, the unbeliever declares that God is really among you. Not by tongues in this amazing outward display where it might seem impressive, but by intelligible, normal communication where it's not blabbing, but it's just normal speaking to one another in ways that are understandable. This is how God's very presence is displayed in the body. And so in this section, as Paul kind of compares tongues and prophecy, he considers their effect, its effect on unbelievers. Tongues further alienates, whereas prophecy can bring unbelievers to repentance. And I want us to notice, this is the crutch for the whole chapter, but what's the difference in the two? What's really the issue in comparing tongues and prophecy? Well, I think it's clear what Paul's getting at is intelligibility. It's been this way all through chapter 14. He wants things to happen together that are understandable by all. This is really the issue. Only what is understandable is allowed in this corporate worship setting. Paul is really clear on that. If it is not intelligible, if it is not understandable by all, then it is not to be at the corporate setting. Only intelligible communication builds up. Only intelligible communication allows the outsider to come in and say amen. Only intelligible communication allows the unbeliever to come in, hear the word of God, and be brought to repentance and worshiping the one true living God. I mean, when we read through verses 24 and 25 and this unbeliever coming in and all that's happening to him, don't we want those things? Isn't that what we'd want to hear from our worship settings? That unbelievers come in and that they hear the word of God and that they repent and worship God and say, God is really among you? Don't we really? I, mean, I hope we want those things. As a body, we ought to desire that this play out in our body week in and week out, that unbelievers are compelled to enter, that see or hear or know something is different here and are willing to come in and hear something that is understandable and be brought to a different place through the presence of God in our midst. This is what we want. We want to build up the body. We want outsiders to be able to come in and say amen. We want unbelievers to come to saving faith in Christ. But to do that, we have to use communication that is understandable. We have to speak in a language that people can understand, that out, outsiders and believers can come in and understand. And so really, when we're evaluating our setting, when we're evaluating our corporate gatherings, I think a good yardstick is, is what would the outsiders say? What would the unbelievers say? And we don't form everything directly for them, but it's definitely a good yardstick. Are we doing something well? Are we gathering together and what we're doing, is it, is it going well? Can an outsider, an unbeliever come in and understand what's going on here? See, what the Corinthians did is they preferred a gift, tongues, that was less useful within because it doesn't build up, that even has a lot of potential for harm and was causing harm, and it's less useful without and so really, he's, he's telling them, you, you have decided and picked a gift that is less useful than other gifts. Less useful, not only within, but also without in both areas. Whereas he holds up prophecy. 
And he says, this is a mode of intelligible communication that is understandable. And I think that we could add in this other modes of communication that are understandable. And he says, this will build up the whole. And this will be better without as well. That unbelievers and outsiders can say amen and be converted through understandable communication. And so as a body, we need to love one another well by using communication that's intelligible, by speaking in ways that people can understand. And also, I think there's a correction here for us for valuing the right things, not just valuing the show or the display or what would seem to be a display of the Spirit and powerful, but valuing rightly what God values. And God has communicated clearly to us, and he wants us to value that. It encourages me here as I read through verses 24 and 25 that the presence of God is felt not through some display. It's not this amazing light show, tongues speaking action that's going on that draws unbelievers in and says, God is really here. It's normal, ordinary communication where people hear the clear word of God, where they can understand. And in that, in that, the unbeliever says, man, God's presence is here. So that ought to keep us from all sorts of, of errors. We don't need to be a performance. We don't need to be a display. You don't need all those things to bring people to Christ. They need to hear. It doesn't need to be showy, but they need to understand. And so our, our corporate worship, it's to be compelling. But it's not to be compelling because we're all speaking in tongues and it looks like the Spirit's among us and we really enjoy how it makes us feel and how it shows the presence of God to the outside. Our, our worship gatherings are to be compelling because they're understandable and because they're clear on what's important, that we point to God and to his word and say, you can understand this. There's life found here. So the way to do this isn't the show. It's through communicating clearly. And so our corporate worship is to be compelling, but, but Paul would go further than that. It's not just to be compelling. It's also to have order. If you look down in verse 26, Paul continues his instructions on their corporate worship setting. He says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, each a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Now look at this, all, all have something. They're all bringing something, which is great, but it can also be a big problem, right? Everybody wants their thing. They all have a hymn. That would be awesome if we ever, everybody pick your favorite hymn. We're, we're singing that today. Or everybody pick a lesson. You, you, can, you can see the, the chaos that this would, would have. There would, there would be some issues here. Not everybody would be built up. And Paul wants to put the goal squarely in their minds over and over again through chapter 14 that when you come together, you need to build one another up. This is the goal of what you're doing, to build one another up, no matter the gift. And so if you want to join the armed forces and be a soldier, like there's some basic training that you all need to go through so that you can be a soldier. You might be a medic, you might be in IT, you might be doing all sorts of other stuff rather than being on the front lines, but you need to learn how to be a soldier first. You need to learn how to fire a gun. You need to learn how to fight an enemy. There's some certain things that you have to do, no matter if you're a medic or not. Whether you're on the front lines or not, you need to know how to do certain things. This is what Paul is saying. You, you have lots of gifts. You, you, you might have a wide variety of gifts. You have lots of members in your body, and you need every different member. But they all need to be learning how to, to, to fire the gun in the right direction. You all need to be able to learn how to exercise and use your gifts for the right thing. You might all have a hymn. You might all have a lesson. You might all have a tongue and a prophecy. But let's do everything, all of those. Let's channel them toward one thing, toward building one another up. 
So the same should be true for us. We all need to learn how to use our gifts for the good of all, for the building up of the body. And so we need to, we need to know, we need to work to know, what are my gifts? What, what has God gifted me with? How, how can I use this for, for building one another up? And that, that always brings up the question, how do I know my gifts? Like, what, what do I do? Well, I think that the easiest way to start determining and figuring out where God has gifted you is to start serving. Get busy within the body. Get going. Work at it. And then let the, the body give you affirmation or denial. Like, nope, that's not you there. Or, yes, you're doing great. Keep that going. And, and as a body, let's be faithful to do those things. Let's not let somebody go down a path where they think they're gifted and they're really not. That won't build up. We want everybody to be built up, so let's, let's be faithful to one another. And I love what one author said, that the church is an ideal venue to see the talents and gifts of others because most gifts emerge in the context of serving. And the church is this ideal venue for you to determine and figure out what are your gifts because you can serve here. It's an ideal venue for you to start serving. Serve one another. There's all sorts of areas that you could serve. We don't even have like official categories for all of them. We just want people to be busy serving one another. And in this service, all these gifts start to emerge. So all of a sudden you decide, I want to host a home group. That would be helpful to people. We need more home groups. We need to make space for more people to come in and be included in community, to have that biblical community. And you start opening up your home. Maybe it's something you've never thought about, but all of a sudden you find joy in it. And people are saying, man, thank you. They're giving you some affirmation. Maybe you're gifted there. Or, or maybe you start teaching. You start saying things and people understand what's going on. And they're actually affirming what's going on. So, so maybe you're gifted there. But it all comes within the context of serving. It's this ideal place for us to figure out where we're we gifted. What should I be doing within the body to build up? Start serving. But in order to build up well, we have to exercise our gifts well. And to exercise the gifts well within this setting, there needs to be some order. And this is what Paul continues to tell them about. If you look in 27, he says, If any speak in a tongue, let there only be one or two at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church, in your corporate setting, and speak to himself and to God. And so Paul imposes in their corporate settings, he imposes three limitations to tongues. And he is very clear about this. The first one is there must be an interpreter. All communication is to be intelligible to the whole. And if it is not, it's not to happen. The second is that there's one speaker at a time. So Paul is very clear about these things. He is imposing this. This is how you bring order to your corporate settings. There must be an interpreter. There's only one speaker at a time. And the third is Two or three at most speak. Two or three at most. And so Paul is saying these are the requirements. If, if these things aren't met, then there's to be no use of tongues in the corporate setting. If you do not meet these three things, then they are not to be used. And so what you don't see is this mass use of tongues, that everybody in the congregation is all speaking in tongues. Paul limits that here. What you don't see is this frenzy from the corporate corporation, the whole people that are gathered together. You don't see a frenzy where it's uncontrolled, people running up and down the aisle, screaming and shouting and doing their own thing. You don't see that here. There's limitations on that. You don't see this lack of control where people feel like they're just going to erupt if they don't do something. No, there's, there's order here. There's no lack of control. There's no this chaotic prayers all in their own language, all in their own tongue going on. None of that is happening here. Paul is really, really clear with these limitations. 
Instead, Paul gives these instructions so that their worship settings would be practiced and would be maintained with order. And Paul wants this order to be with prophecy as well. You don't just limit it to tongues and say, you know what, this is your big problem. Here's some limitations. He also goes on to talk about prophecy as well. You look in verse 29. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. And if revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So some speak. That's what's going on here. We, we see some people speaking. But what do we see everybody else doing? They're not just being a spectator. They're active as well here. The church never, never being spectators. This isn't a show. We're not putting on a performance for you. You aren't to sit back and kick your legs up and relax when we have worship together. No, you're not spectators. You're watching. You're listening. You're weighing what is going on. You're listening to these, these prophecies, and you're weighing them. You're thinking about them. Remember, this is where some mature thinking could really come in handy. When you start listening to these things, is this of the truth? And this is clear with what Paul has said other places. If you look in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says to test everything. Test it. In 1 John 4, he says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so the people, the church, is to be testing these things because there are lots of false prophets. So this mature thinking that he's calling them to can really come in handy because there are a lot of false prophets in the world. Now I want us to notice here just real quick that it's implied here that the prophecy that's going on isn't infallible truth. It isn't scripture. It doesn't have the same authority or weight as scripture whatsoever. It's to be weighed. It's to be thought about. And the church is the one who's doing this. The, the church is weighing these prophecies. We ought to be people like these Berean Christians who heard the word from Paul and they weighed it. They, they went and they looked. They searched the scripture asking if these things that Paul was saying were true. Does this line up with the scripture? Is what this person telling me, is it truth? Is it lining up with what God has said? And I want you all to do that all the time. We need to be able to think. Ask that. I, I, Ask that of me every single week. Do not let me get away with false teaching. That wouldn't be helpful for my soul and it wouldn't be helpful for building up. We need to weigh these things, searching the scripture. Is this true? Does this line up with God's word? This is what Paul would have the church do. And so what we see is that right teaching in the church isn't, isn't just the responsibility of the pastors. Now it is one of our prime responsibilities that we have right teaching before the body. And we take that very seriously. But it's not just our responsibility. What happens if the four of us just go off track? What happens if we're teaching false doctrine? All of a sudden we think, yeah, you need Christ, but you also need to do this. Yeah, you, you need Christ, but you're also going to need to follow these laws. Well, that'd be a false gospel. And Paul said, don't let anybody preach a false gospel. Let them be anathema if they preach a false gospel. Amen. And so if we start doing that, what's the church to do? I think it's clear what the church is to do. They're to take action because they're weighing these things. They're looking to the scripture and saying, now this doesn't seem to be lining up. So we need to take action here because we don't want false teaching. Now, this doesn't mean that we're critical. It just means that we're thoughtful. We're looking to the scripture. We're trying to say, what does this say? We're humbling ourselves underneath the scripture. We're saying, what does this say? And is what he's saying, does that line up? Do these things go together? Not being critical of people, trying to poke holes in every tiny little thing that we can, but we're being really thoughtful. We want to be faithful to God. And so we want people that can help us be faithful to God. And so he continues as he instructs them to, to be active in this process. If you look in verse 30, it says, If a revelation is made to another sitting there, 
let the first be silent. There's order here. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. If there's one that's giving prophecy and another one has this revelation, the first is to what? Be silent and let the other one speak. Let the next one go. There's order here. There's no lack of control going on here. There's no someone say, no, I gotta continue. I gotta finish. You don't have anything to say. No, there's, there's order in their body. Now, I think what Paul is doing is he's speaking to their situation. He's saying, this is what's going on, and here's you can bring order to this. I don't necessarily think that everything he's saying is for every church of all time, but he clearly gives us some instructions on how to maintain order in our setting. And the order benefits the whole. The order benefits the entire body. Look what happens when there's order. All learn. That's what we want, right? All are encouraged. Yes, amen to that. And this happens as a result of there being some order. So each of the prophets that's going on here, they're, they're subject to themselves. They're, they're, they're not out of control. They're not just, I have to say this. No, there's, there's order. They have control. They're saying things they feel like are from God, but not everybody does. So this order for the entire gathering, it benefits the whole. And this is like so many other things, that order can bring about peace and lack of confusion. You think about marriage. There, there's, there's order there. There's a difference handed down by God and his great wisdom. There's leadership and there's submission. It doesn't mean that, that everything is always easy, that everything, the order in marriage makes everything peaceful all the time. We know that's not true, right? We're sinful. But order brings peace there. That if both are leading then there's going to be some headbutting, a lot of it. And if both are always submitting, then there's going to be even more problems because then nothing is getting done. You see, there's, there's some order brought to marriage so that there might be peace, so that this relationship might work out. There's order brought to this corporate setting so there might be peace, so that all might be encouraged, so that all might be built up. Order can bring this peace. And corporate worship is to have order so that all might be built up. Paul's very clear about this. And so in giving these instructions on proper exercise of the gifts, here's what I want us to see, is that Paul has been so clear in rightly exercising your gifts for the building up of the whole, but he kind of does something different here. Here, he speaks of the proper abstaining from your gifts for the good of the whole. We don't know who all brought a tongue into their corporate setting, but only two or three are to have one. We don't know how many prophets and how many prophecies that they have among them, but a lot of them are, are abstaining from exercising their gifts for the good of the whole, for the good of order. Everyone might have had a hymn. Everyone might have had a lesson, but not everyone is speaking. Not everyone is giving their full uh, gift to the corporate setting all the time. And so here we have something different, this abstaining rather than exercising of the gift for the good of the whole. This abstaining is to happen for those who have legitimate gifts, even maybe legitimate prophecies, legitimate tongues that would be interpreted. They're to abstain as well. And so what happens here is there's this denial of some sort of personal agenda. All the personal agendas that are brought in are laid down for the good of the whole. Man, this is a lesson that we need to learn. This is a lesson that I need to learn. The Corinthians needed this correction, that you're not here to put on display your gifts, that you're not here to put on display your power, but you're here for a bigger agenda than yourself. Amen. You're here to build up the whole. I need this correction as well. One of the reasons that we go through the scripture, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is so that I don't come up here and just push my own agenda. And you, 
as the people listening are to remain faithful and listening to these things. Is this lining up with what we've said? Is this going forward like we're supposed to? I don't need to be pushing my own agenda. I need to be hiding behind the word and pushing that forward. And if that's a, that offends, that's fine. But that's what we want to offend. And so we don't want any personal agendas. We lay those things down. We say, God, we want what you want. And he wants to build up the whole. And so we lay down our personal agenda. And sometimes we abstain from exercising our gift for the good of everybody. Some of the best friends and the best things that I've seen happen are not when friends blurt out their opinions on everything, but when they say, maybe you've heard enough. Maybe I'll just wait, talk to you some other time. Because they're looking to build up. Their desire is to love. So we have abstaining and exercising, and they're kind of two sides of the coin of building up. Sometimes you exercise to build up, and sometimes you abstain to build up. Both are to be happening. But Paul doesn't just instruct us on order in corporate worship, but he tells us why we need order. And yeah, we, we understand the, the frenzy, the chaos. We don't want it to be a circus. We want unbelievers to understand, but he, he drives further in. If we look in verse 33, he says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, Paul has been giving instructions, but he wants them to know why. And Paul is addressing them and instructing them and bringing order to their setting, not because Paul is OCD. Not because Paul wants to be in control of everything in the Corinthian church. I think if he did have control of everything, it would look a lot different, but he doesn't. And he's not pushing for that. He doesn't have OCD. He's not looking to control all the Corinthians' activities. What he is doing is he's bringing theology. He's bringing the character and nature of God to bear in their corporate life. He wants the church and the church's gatherings to reflect and to image the God who they gather for. He wants them to reflect their God in their setting. It has to do not so much with Paul's personality or his desire that they do things his way. It has to do with the character of God. Paul's theology is being driven out and he's showing them. He's kind of revealing. He's, he's saying, this is the theology behind this. This is why you need to do this because God is not a God of confusion and your gatherings are not to be marked by confusion. People shouldn't come in and say, I don't know what happened there and then head out. That's not glorifying to God and it doesn't reflect and image God well. And Paul is saying, this, this is like other things. God is generous, so we want to be generous. God is merciful, so we want to be merciful. God is loving, so we want to love other people. We could go on and on and on. We are to image and reflect this God. And God is not a God of confusion. And so we don't want to be people of confusion either. Instead, God is a God of peace. And this ought to be reflected in our gatherings. That God doesn't bring in confusion. He brings in peace. So much order and so much peace that unbelievers come in to a foreign place talking to a foreign God, and yet they understand, and they're not confused. In fact, if unbelievers come in and are confused, I think we're reflecting and imaging our God poorly, that we are not loving him and loving others well. And so what you see is all these instructions are flowing out of who God is. It's not just Paul's agenda. He doesn't just want to like have the final word on tongues. He, he wants God to have that word. God is not a God of confusion, so it's flowing out of that that your gatherings aren't to be marked by confusion, but by peace. So we're not just orderly for orderly's sake. We don't just pick and choose what we're going to order and what we're not going to order. We don't just pick and choose these different things. We want it to come from God because we want to image God, and we want to know him and make him known in our gatherings. And God is not a God of confusion. 
I think that's so clear when we look at Jesus. God's hard to kind of grab and touch. Spirit, how do you even explain those things? How, how do you describe God? How do you, how do you understand and know God? Well, man, when we think through that, we, we couldn't do it. We, we can't do it. We couldn't know God on our own. And so God, in his grace and in his love, he, he made himself known. And, and he didn't do it poorly. He did it really well. In fact, we could call it perfectly. He did it in person of Jesus, who came and perfectly displayed, was the perfect imprint of God, was the very God of very gods in human flesh. God's not a God of confusion. He wants it to be very, very clear, and he makes it clear in Jesus. Amen. And so what we have is, is we have four books written about who, who Jesus is. And we have lots of letters saying, here's who Jesus is, here's what he did, and here's how you can live all these things out. Here's how it comes to bear on your lives each and every single day. We have all this, all this Bible written for us so that we might know God clearly. So we might see who he is, see his character, and live that out. And we gather in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory, and we are to image him well in our gatherings. And so we are not of confusion. We are to be people who are of peace when you can come in and you can sense the presence of God because we're using understandable language because we have an understandable God. That we want God to be known and we know that he can be known. And that kind of worship, that kind of corporate gathering, that's, that's compelling. When people can come in and hear something that is a very unique message, when they hear that they can know God, that, that God would live life with them forever, that God doesn't even just like say, I will. He, he says, I want to. Come in. That, that's compelling. And we want to be this corporate people that have this compelling message and we make it known to unbelievers, to outsiders, and to one another. I heard a quote that, you know, like the church we know is not primarily for unbelievers and we don't want to be about that, just, just evangelizing unbelievers in our, mess, in, our, in our service each and every week. But sometimes you hear stuff like, well, let's, let's move beyond the gospel. Like, let's, let's get past Jesus. Let's, let's go to the deeper things. We're believers here. And the people that say, we don't need that gospel anymore are the people that need that gospel all the more. And so when we come together, we, we make no bones about it. Like, we want to be about Christ. We want him to be known. So everything we do is flowing in line with the gospel. So we, we sing hymns that say, God has created us and he is good and we should image him, but we don't but that we have this Savior who we can't even describe, so we have to say, hallelujah, what a Savior who has rescued us from our sins. And we have this hope and assurance in Christ that lets us come and sit under his word, knowing that he hasn't put us in judgment and put us on the shelf and said, you're done. But he said, get in the game. Start working for my glory. I want you to do this. You're mine. Let's go to work. God's not a God of confusion. He wants us to be very clear. God is a God of peace, and this God made a way for us to have peace with him. And he gave us this sacred symbol to remind us over and over and over again about his clear message of the gospel. He gave us this symbol that, that we might not miss kind of one of the central acts of who God is in his death and resurrection. And so he gives us this Lord's Supper where, where Christ comes and he, and he invites disciples the weary, the wounded, the battered, the kind of downtrodden, the, the dumb, people that have not figured out all this stuff, and he, and he invites them in. He, he graciously extends to them a meal. 
He, he takes the bread and he, he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He takes this, this cup and he hands it to him. This is, this is forgiveness offered through my blood that I'm pouring out for you. And this is for believers, that we would come and be reminded of Christ's death and life and resurrection, that we wouldn't forget that we wouldn't be confused on our status in Christ. If you are in Christ, you're all in. And so what we do is, is we take this meal, so we, we remember, we remember what Christ has done, but we're also taking this, this meal as a victory meal, that Christ has done it all, that we didn't deserve a thing before God, that we didn't deserve peace with God, we deserved his wrath. But by his body and by his blood, he's extended to us his life. And so we, we take this meal as, as a sign of victory, that not only have we been given life in Christ, but that Christ is coming back Amen. and that he will win the victory full and final then and we await for his return in hope and in victory and in celebration. Life's not always easy. We don't always have victory every day and every day isn't a Friday, but we have Christ and Christ is enough and he will sustain us until the end and that's what this meal is saying. And so if you're a believer, we're gonna take this meal. We're gonna tear off a piece of the bread, we're going to dip in the juice, and we're going to be reminded of our faith in Christ Jesus, that if we're in him, if we've trusted in him, then we have life now and forevermore, that he will win and he will come back for us and take us home. If you're not a believer, this meal is not for you. This is a sacred family meal. What we want you to do is take Christ. We want you to know very clearly that you can have life with God through faith in Christ. We want you to believe in Christ. And so take Christ instead and don't take this meal. It's perfectly okay to just stay in your seat and pray and ask God to save you. And if you don't know what that looks like, you don't know what that means, please talk to somebody and ask them, how do I follow Christ? But if you're a believer, let's, let's stand, let's, let's take this meal. And there's gonna be a song and a video playing in the back. And as you take this meal, like meditate on these words. And, and if you want, stand and sing. If you want, kneel and pray. If you want any of those things, we want you to feel free in order to worship our God together. And so I invite you guys, if you're a believer, come and, and take of this meal.